0: Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 129. We are back from a summer podcast hiatus. Um, took a little break to regroup and gather up some content and get our feet underneath us. And we are back with a podcast that's actually really overdue. Um, today's guest is a long time friend of mine. We, we go back over 20 years in the industry and we've, we've actually done a lot of products and seminars and things like that together. Um, and he's a guy who's taught me a ton over the years. And, and really, in a lot of ways, our careers have worked in parallel um, to the point that a lot of people thought that we were the same person early on in our career. Um, we did uh, both go different direct directions in, in when we came to that fork in the road. He's doing a lot of stuff in, in basketball and soccer, while I've gone to the baseball realm. But we stayed in touch and, and brainstorm a lot, uh, communicate, and share ideas. Um, he runs a super successful gym in Indianapolis that, you know, in a lot of ways is, is setting some important industry trends. Um, just a guy that I think can teach a lot for all. of us across different um, athletic realms Um, too often we get really really focused just looking at baseball and i think we sometimes need to take a step back and look at other sports and and what's going on there um, because there's there's definitely lessons that will carry over to how we work with our athletes so whether you're a strength edition conditioning coach or rehab specialist, you know there's, there's certainly a, a ton to be taken from this podcast, but I think if our players, coaches, and parents um, from the baseball realm also take a step back, there'd be a lot of pearls and wisdoms uh, that are here that I'll you know, carry over across realms, so we're in for a good one. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF-certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things, and that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on the road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Today's guest is the president of Robertson Training Systems and the co-owner of Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training. IFAS been named one of the top 10 gyms in America by Men's Health Magazine several times over the past decade. He has a master's degree in sports biomechanics from Ball State University and for about 20 years has worked with a wide range of clients and athletes from rehab patients to the professional athlete realm. A former powerlifter, he's a prolific writer and content creator whose writing and videos have been featured around the world for close to two decades. While he's worked with individuals from all walks of life and sports, his greatest focus these days is in preparation for basketball and soccer athletes. Please welcome to the show, Mike Robertson. Mike, this is incredibly long overdue. Thank you for joining the show. No,
1: dude, thanks for having me on, man. I'm
0: pumped. And I'm impressed. You have many leather-bound books in your background, and I have like my my gross office that I probably haven't cleaned for about five years. So <laughs> I'm expecting you to, to deliver on par with the aesthetics of your office.
1: Well... This, is, this was like the Zoom room of 2020, so I had to make sure it looked official, right? I like it. Oh, this is awesome,
0: man. Well, we've, we've been um, confused as the same person for many, many years, and I'm proud to say that we've kind of gone in different directions and yeah. established our own die identities compared to, what, 2005 to 2008, but yeah. um, my world is baseball, and th- this podcast is obviously very much about baseball, and I know you have, you have dabbled in, in that world some. But obviously basketball and soccer are your, your your true realms of expertise. The basketball niche has really taken off for you. Yep. And I'm a, I'm a huge believer in looking to other sports to see how we can improve, you know, on our own. And, and you're certainly seeing that a lot in the baseball world with everything from like acute to chronic workload monitoring and you know, particularly in kind of the sports science realm. But I'm curious, you know, when you think about baseball and then you think about your own expertise, like what are the big lessons that the baseball players are gonna draw from a guy who spends his life in the basketball and soccer realm?
1: Yeah. You know, I I think one of the things that I always come back to is like building from this general athleticism base. Uh, and I I can only imagine how many questions you've dealt with over the years, how many concerned parents, and they assume that, you know, the things that you do in baseball are like a 1000% specific. And it's not to say that there isn't sports specific elements to what all of us do. But also understanding that underpinning all those are foundational movements, right? Like, we can talk about stuff you do in the weight room, like squatting and lunging and pressing and pulling, but even acceleration, deceleration, movement mechanics, rotation, just as a whole. Like, this is one thing I always try and come back to. And, you know, you and I, over the years, we have been lucky. We've gotten to share some athletes where, you know, I'd maybe get some guys early and then you get them late. Obviously, that's your thing the sport specific element. But I think the one thing that I could do to help them and to, to give you the best chance for success was, hey, I'm going to make sure these guys are moving really well. They've got a foundation that they can build from going forward. And so I think that's one thing that that everybody can rely on and lean back on is like, hey, look, you can always widen and improve your general movement base. And if you do that, you set yourself up for success later on. I mean, you see it. I see it. The kids that are like specializing at five years old and working on pitches and, you know, things of that nature are the ones that end up getting beat up and burn out.
0: I think, you know, you kind of just even hinted at, like,
1: I read this great book, uh, Upstream. It was by okay. one of the Heath brothers. I
0: can't remember if it was Chip or Dan, but he just talked about all these these principles. It's like, how do you think upstream? What is it that you can do in one realm that has these trickling out effects to else, elsewhere? And, you know, I actually read a study this morning and it kind of verified something we already knew, but they came out in an athletic training journal last month about basically how hip extension in the pitching delivery, um, you know, if you had... Yeah. And they, and they use like dynamometers for like an on the table assessment of hip extent yeah. strength. And they've shown that it was correlated with hip shoulder separation, which we know in turn is correlated with better velocity and and then reduced you know, stress on both the elbow and the shoulder. So you, you realize that, hey, just, getting better hip extension, had yeah. big time trickle down effect. Yep. Like, do you have those big rocks? Like what are the, what's the upstream thinking? Like when you're, when you're looking at the the big picture program design, like what are the the adaptations that you need to chase in every athlete, regardless whether it's basketball or baseball or soccer or something else?
1: Dude, first off, hip extension is such a big one, right? Um, and, and we know that like movement is triplanar. So you got like hip external roti- or excuse me, extension, adduction, IR, like, those are big ones. When I when I see people and have they have these gross deficits and their ability to separate their hips to get full hip extension, like it's a recipe for disaster, right? You might see those things in baseball. I see the same things in basketball. That's the guy whose knee is chronically cranky or he's got an Achilles tendinopathy because they're trying to get that push and that explosiveness from somewhere else, right? So I think, you know, I'm always looking at Bill calls them general movements. I just think of it as general movement capacity, like, hey, can you get full hip extension? Um, can you control your, your lumbo-pelvic spine complex, right? Because we see people, if they don't have hip extension, they're going to get the extension somewhere else. So then that's the person that has, you know, uh, maybe an FAI, maybe they have uh, lower back pain, knee pain. So just coming back to kind of these general movement principles and you know, it doesn't matter how you look at it, right? Some people look at it on a table. Some people look at it in a general movement screen. I don't care how you look at it, but like hip extension for me, you've really hit the nail on the head. That's like one of the biggest ones. I see it across the board and people that don't have that or, or try and find some way to substitute for it are ones that generally have some sort of pain or issue somewhere else in the kinetic chain.
0: Interesting. Um, and you, you kind of like almost hinted at my next question. I wanted to talk about assessment. Um, you know, when, you're you're thinking key considerations across all sports. Like where where does your assessment process go? Maybe outline what it is you do. Mm-hmm. I know it's commonalities for for the two of us, and probably some differences based on you know particular sports we we were involved in, and then our exposures to different principles. But where do you start? Where do you finish um, when it comes to actually evaluating somebody?
1: Yeah. So I think general to specific is the key here, right? So we used to do, and, and keyword being used, we used to do so many table tests and kind of realized like over time, like people don't come to us to be thrown on a table and treated like a PT patient for an hour. Uh, so we will do some table tests now just to root out what does shoulder uh, rotation look like? What does hip rotation look like? But right now I love to get them up and moving. And again, coming back to those basic movement principles, squatting, hinging, lunging, push-up, rotation, toe touch, just trying to get a feel for, in general, how they move, their strategies. And then with every athlete, I like to try and go in and get some foundational numbers. If it's uh, a basketball player, for instance, we may do like a jump profile where we do like a squat jump, counter movement jump, depth jump. So we can kind of see, are they more of like a force producing athlete? Are they more of like an elastic, bouncy type of creature? We can tease that out. i love to take them in the gym too, and just have them do general movements that they're going to do in their sport, right? What does their acceleration look like? What does their deceleration look like when they're moving side to side? Cause that's obviously a big thing in every sport, right? Whether it's shuffling to field or ground ball or shuffling to stay in front of a guy in basketball, that's that lateral acceleration and deceleration. I, su- I think it's something that's important as well. So, you know, I'd like to start with the general stuff yeah. because sometimes that gives you some ideas as to, okay, these are specific limitations Then you can see the big picture, like how does it manifest when they're moving, right? Like how does that lack of hip rotation impact their squat or their lunge or their hinge? And then finally, you can kind of see, okay, now how does this actually impact their movement at speed or at velocity? And then you can kind of break it all down from there. And the thing that's great for the athlete is you can help them understand, okay, hey, look, some of this isolated stuff may not look sexy, but you really kind of give them a trail of breadcrumbs and you let them know like, hey, look, This one little thing that we see here is impacting your ability to do this in the gym and then to do this on the court. So I think that's really valuable to help your athletes understand why you do some of that minutiae or some of that lower level stuff in the programs.
0: I like the idea of of the general before specific. And I've kind of gone back and forth over this years, even just because of like facility logistics. Right. A lot of times the specific stuff happens on a table in the offices, you know, scapular control screens, you're doing them, you know, maybe shirtless with baseball players and you want to do it, you know, in a more private environment versus trading sure. around in the gym. But, you know, when you go general, the specific, and I, I never really thought about it until you just said that, but you're, you're kind of setting yourself best up for like a test retest approach, right? Mm-hmm. You can, you can take them through some of those deceleration progressions. You see something you don't like, then you pop them on the table and you can dig deeper on, you know, maybe why that's the case maybe you throw some kind of intervention at them and then, and then retest it and it's better. So it's, it's definitely instant buy-in.
1: Yeah. Well, and especially with athletes, right? Like their athletic brain is so keen. Like if you give them one small change, if you give an athlete 10 degrees more hip internal rotation or a little bit more hip extension, immediately they can tell, right? Like when they hit a lunge they're like, Oh my gosh, now that feels easier. It doesn't hurt my knee, you know, little things like that. They're in tune and they're so adept At picking things up. Like if you change little things like that and you say, Hey, and we did that in five minutes, imagine if we train this and focus on this for a month or two Mm -hmm. or three months or an off season, imagine Mm -hmm. how much better you're going to feel. So it almost works as part of the selling process when you can demonstrate and create a change that quickly.
0: Yeah, then the, the comment on on pulling back on some of the more specific assessments like the range of motion table type stuff interests me. Um I mean obviously, you know, I, I'm familiar with Bill's work and a lot of the the outcome measures there are indicative of you know kind of what you need to attack. I'm curious which ones are your keepers, which ones are the ones that maybe you've you've you know learned to do without over the years just because they didn't tell you exactly what you wanted to know.
1: Yeah, so here's why we did that. First of all, I think this will be helpful because I think a lot of times now, like there's certain things that get pushed in our industry, right? And not to say there's anything wrong with table tests, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you coming up through six years of college, right? Four years of undergraduate XI and two years of master's biomechanics, I did exactly zero table tests, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not something that's in my skill set. It's not in my wheelhouse, but I watched a lot of reps squatting, lunging, hinging, pushing up. So part of the reason we pulled back from that was because one, it's not something I'm super skilled at or our staff is super skilled at. Because again, we're strength coaches, we're personal trainers. Uh, But also the goal for us is to be able to write a better program. Mm -hmm. So you could do 40 table tests and look at all those results and not know how to write a good program. Or I could take you out on the gym floor and spend 15 minutes watching you move and know exactly what you can or can't do. So that's kind of why we moved away from that Because I just felt like this is going to help us write a better program. Now, with that being said, I do think there's a a reason and a time for table test, right? So when we have baseball players in, you best believe we're going to look at their shoulders, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's expected. It's almost part of the process, right? And again, if we can demonstrate a change in IR, ER, something like that, and it reduces maybe a shoulder issue they're having or an elbow issue they're having, they're immediately bought in. So generally, we'll look at stuff like uh, their breathing patterns, their ISA on the table. We'll look at shoulder IRs and ERs, hip IRs and ERs. Generally, that's about it. It's it's pretty watered down and pretty basic. Um, because again, I feel like we want some of that information there and the rest will pick up when we get into that more like general movement assessment.
0: I like that. It's a, good, it's a good point. I think at the end of the day, people lose sight of the fact that, you know, the assessment's there to drive programming decisions, which is yes. drive yes. adaptation. So, you know, it's really about acquiring the information you need. The one thing I will say is is a lot of the table stuff does from just a pure objective measure. It allows you to, to kind of evaluate who an athlete is over time. Yes, so The conversation might be different if it's like, hey, I have a college athlete. He's only going to be here for this summer. You know, he's selling out for the dream before his senior year of baseball, and then he's going to be done and go sell insurance or something. <laughs> it's very right. different if we're trying to evaluate, like, how is this player – you know evolving all over the course of time certainly like return to play stuff for injured athletes it helps to have like objective measures of what they were before they got hurt um and that can open up size, i think in terms of like the long term process so you know the no, secret is be general and specific be objective and subjective right
1: yeah yeah and and that's one thing that's great having bill there right is like i've got some of the objective stuff on the gym floor that i need to see but when i've got athletes that are working between both of us he knows like hey if this guy comes in and he's less than 20 degrees of hip IR, like, we're we're at a problem point, right? Like, this is a point where he could break down versus if he's consistently showing up and he's at 20 degrees of IR and 40 degrees of ER, he knows, hey, this guy's good to go. Let's keep training and we keep going. So couldn't agree more, man. You got to have something objective to tie the decision-making process back to.
0: This this might double up on a question from earlier, but just as we started talking programming, like... When it comes to this program design world, like we both know, like it's, it's not easy to cheat, teach, right? No, um, it takes a lot of time, a lot of reps, you know, a lot of writing bad programs before you get good ones. But, you know, when you look at this actual program design, like, you know, what elements do you think are applicable across all sports? Like, when you look at good programs, obviously we talk about hinging, we talk about squatting. Like, yep. what are the, the non negotiables that, that you're going to integrate, regardless of whether it's a field hockey player or a
1: football player? Ooh. Man, that's a tough one.
0: (laughs) I feel like this is the perfect time for like your R7 answer.
1: Yeah, well, okay. So I didn't want to just shamelessly plug, but R7 does work well, Yeah. yeah. right? And it's funny, I literally just gave kind of the program design talk to our our interns today. But yeah, I said, look, R7 is the starting point for this, right? Because it gives you a template and a framework to build from. Uh, And if you're unfamiliar with R7, I'll give you like the two minute synopsis. Literally, Bill and I, when we started... At the gym were like two hardcore technicians, and we think of things in like geeky scientific terms. But your clients and athletes don't think like that. So me, uh, Bill, and then Eric Otter, who we both know, uh, sat in a room one day and said, "How do we make this digestible to people that are walking in?" We basically came up with R7, which is a language uh, that it describes each section of a workout. So the seven R's are release reset, readiness, uh, oh my gosh, reactive resistance, resiliency, and recovery. So each seven or each R, if you will, is a stop in the workout. So release is like your foam rolling, your soft tissue work. You start with that. R2 is your resets, breathing, correctives. R3 is readiness. But the whole point of it was twofold. Number one, for somebody that's walking in off the street, they know why they're doing each part of the workout. Right. So they know release. Oh, yeah. uh, I roll on that foam roller thing and it hurts like heck. But when I get up, I have more motion in my knee and it doesn't hurt and I can squat pain free. Right. So there is a client side to it, but there's also a coach's side because this way all of our coaches, all of our staff have one lens that they're kind of looking at programming through. Now they can fill in the blanks however they'd like. You know, if you got a pet exercise that you love to use in resistance, R5, by all means, use it. But this way, it just provides this element of cohesiveness across an entire team or across an entire staff that allows everybody to work on the same page and be able to look at programs through a fairly uniform lens. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is just having kind of this overarching system or framework that you're using to write programs versus just like, oh, yeah, this is what I feel like throwing out there today.
0: I like that. Um, And and maybe I, I love that this concept of like a framework. You know, cause you and I both know like our Turkish getup could be part of like the actual like resistance portion, yeah. right? But it could also be something that you throw in and maybe a less loaded pattern into the warm up. Absolutely. You no, know, to, to actually, you know, groove the movement. It could also be thrown in in like a conditioning circuit, right? We see people that sure. have, like carries that go to get ups that go to all these different things. So, you know, I, I like it cause what it does is it, it forces the coach to think about the framework. Like, yes. You have something that you're emotionally attached to using, but it can also probably fall into you know three or four different categories.
1: Well, it gives you some insight into intent, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're programming a Turkish get up in R five, there's a specific intent versus hey, if I'm doing it in R three, you know maybe I'm just using it as more of a gentle pattern to try and get somebody to roll a little bit better to smooth out those positions, if they're doing it in R6 resiliency, it is, it's more of a conditioning thing. Maybe it's more of a high volume metabolic type stimulus or stressor. So that's what I love about it, man. There's so many ways you can apply it and use it. But again, it gives everybody that looks at that program. If you understand R7 and the basic principles there, anybody that looks at that program can have an idea as to what your intent is when you write a program. And I think that's really valuable because it kind of brings everybody together and helps them have a better understanding of how people are writing programs and why they're trying to do certain things.
0: And, and we both know it takes a long time. I mean, I, I look back on the programs I wrote in 2007 and I, I kind of do a face bomb. I'm sure you're, you're the same. Yes. Even like our, I mean, we're well known for this Neanderthal no more series, which is, I, I mean, still get messages. It's just not good. Um, <laughs> and just, I mean, and, and the scary thing is it helped a lot of people and we were we were very misdirected in a lot of ways there. There was some good stuff in there, but, you yeah. know, so my question to you is, is and I struggle with this myself just because we have a lot of young coaches that come through our system. You know, it, it's hard to write comprehensive training programs. What advice would you give to these young coaches who who want to be there yesterday? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they want to write really, really high level programs sooner than later. What What's the avenue to that end?
1: Well, for starters, here's what I would tell you. It's like if you really dedicate yourself to this stuff, like really like dive in and use like best resources, best materials that are out there now in like two to three years, you're going to write a better program than you or I wrote in our first 15 years. So that's kind of the the carrot that I dangle, right? Like it's just being honest. Like I take our interns through how we write programs now. And I think I didn't write programs like this until like two or three years ago. Yeah. So immediately they have 15 years of, of kind of unseen knowledge at their fingertips. So I tell them that first of all, and then tell them, I tell them second of all, because I come from this very like perfectionist, don't want to be wrong. Like don't fail. Like that's how I was brought up. Right. Versus now I try and spin that not only with my coaches, but with my interns, with my kids, like, Hey, you're going to make mistakes, mm-hmm. right? Like we all make mistakes and you're going to write some bad programs and that's okay. But the one piece of advice that I always give them is, hey, when you're writing this program, always, always, always have rationale for what you're doing. So I always tell our interns, look, when we do your program defense, which they have to do in like two weeks, I could be able to, I should be able to stop you at any point in your program and say very clearly, okay, you pick three by 15 for your set rep scheme. Why? You pick this exercise. Why? Two, zero, two tempo. Why? Why? And so the whole point there is nothing is in your program just because you feel like it, right? It's not on a whim. There's a rationale behind it. So I think even if your program isn't right yep. or how you and I would look at it as being right, if you've got a rationale, it helps you learn faster, right? So even if, if you get the, the outcome that you want, great. But if you don't get the right outcome, at least you have a rationale for, okay, this is what I thought. It didn't work. I'm going to try this the next time. And then you can engage again. So you're constantly getting feedback on what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. But I think the rationale piece is so huge. You can't, and it's hard now, right? Yeah. Think about all the resources that kids have access to. It's like scary. It's a blessing. Yeah, we had nothing. We had nothing. Literally, (laughs) we we had research articles. We
0: barely had cell phones. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right?
1: Now they have Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and, you know, websites. It's like overwhelming. So just like kind of bottle all that, put it away and just focus on rationale. What do you think is going to work? Apply it, try it. Does it work? Yes or no. If yes, great. Continue doing it. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. Start to now figure out, okay, why didn't that work and what can I do to change it to bit to maybe get a better result next time?
0: One of the things that I've seen, I'll I'll talk about two, two trends. The, The first one is that, uh, people seem to have a really, really hard time with exercise sequencing. Like you'll, you'll, you'll see like a, you know, it's like a bottoms up carry paired with like a manual resistance arm characterism. like, yeah, you're going to beat the crap out of your rotator cuff and then go for a long walk while holding a weight overhead, <laughs> like how you destroy like a, a cuff chronically. But right. I, I see that a lot. And what I often wonder is this, is this just the function of a society that gets really excited about exercise Like I'm guilty, but I I published this, but like exercise the week, what they saw on Instagram. Oh my gosh, I love this. I got to put it in my program. And then they just really have no context for where it would actually fit. And all of a sudden you just see stuff that's completely out of order. um, Yes. It, it always blows my mind on that. But the other one that I'm, I'm curious about on your end, if you've seen this, is um, just the timing aspect of it. It seems like a lot of people actually have no appreciation for how long a giving training session will take. And, and one of the examples that we see over the years, we've seen this a couple of times, is actually like if you write a program for a 13-year-old kid who's completely untrained, they can finish it like in like 35 minutes. Like They will yeah. blow through it. Why? Because 13-year-olds, the work weight is the warm-up weight. Like these kids aren't squatting 500. They're not taking plate quarter, plate quarter on the way up. Right. Like literally the work sets are all the same. So you you probably gotta add a set to absolutely everything. They can handle the volume, they're very neurologically inefficient, but we'll see scenarios where it's like way too short on little guys. And then at the end of the spectrum, it can go way too long on on some of the the other athletes who just are given way more volume than they they may be. Able to handle, or they're broken and they have really long warm ups, whatever it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, we see this all the time. And unfortunately, I get it a lot from like my high school and college age kids. You know, they'll come home with like a summer packet or this is what I'm supposed to do at school today. And I'm looking at it, and I'm sure you saw these programs at some point along the way, right? It's where like there's a full upper body workout, right? It's like four by 10, bench press, row shoulder press something else uh forearms and you're like damn that's a lot of volume and then you get into the lower body workout and <laughs> no, it's all the same day right it's like no
0: super most, it's just like one at a time
1: it's literally the most ridiculous workout i've ever seen so you know i try and give people context like elite nba basketball players right and maybe not elite like in the sense of james harden but if you play in the nba you're elite right most of my workouts would take 75 minutes mm-hmm. with a full warm-up, reactive speed, agility, all that, yep. maybe 90. And that's on like the highest end. That's when I've got just them at the start of an off season. They're not doing much on the court. 90 minutes tops, generally like 75. I see high school and college age kids that are going through two hour workouts regularly. It's like, dude, wh- why? Mm-hmm. Why? Why are we putting them through that? And it's one thing. You know, if you've got one training block where it's like very yeah. neurologically demanding.
0: It's usually the phone, right? It's, it's, yeah, like, yeah, that's that's there's a lot of distractions too. That's a big yeah. issue.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, you don't need to be on TikTok or Instagram right. between every set, you know, and luckily a lot of the guys that I work with are pretty, yeah. pretty buttoned up and pretty dialed in. So they'll leave their phone somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's out of hand, man. Like you have to find a way to get the training effect that you want while also dosing it appropriately because more is not always better. And that goes in the sense of like volume, but it also goes in the sense of exercises too. Like if you feel like you need 20 exercises in a workout to fill all the gaps and plug all the holes, like there's some bigger holes in your programming you probably need to fix first.
0: Have have you narrowed your scope? You know, like I know, uh, you know, obviously Mike Boyle, you know, has, has been maybe more, of a contraindicator to certain exercises over the years. And, and I, I found myself doing it as well. You know, I, I don't know if we get a little bit jaded as we, as we age in this industry and we see more athletes who have had more issues with certain ones. I mean, I mean are, are you of the mindset still that there aren't contraindicated exercises? They're only contraindicated people, or are there things that have, have permanently come out of your program?
1: Um, I'd say there are very few things that have permanently come out of my program. Um, there's definitely things like, I mean, I'll still deadlift guys, um, but it's generally not going to be a full off offseason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of that, too, is you just got to think like I, I don't I can't talk for the athletes that you work with. But a lot of the guys that I work with, I just think of it as juice. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they got enough juice physically to play at an NBA level yep. uh, and their season is very long. It's very demanding. So arguably the most important thing I can do for them, rather than trying to add a half inch to their vertical, in an off season is make sure they're moving really good. They're feeling really good. They're within like, like as close as they can be to what their peak, like force and power outputs would be. Like, I think that's way more valuable in an off season than trying to add a little bit more performance to them. So I think part of my bias is the athletes that I work with now versus if I got a high school kid, right. That touches like 10 foot. Well, if he wants to play at the D one level, we've got to increase outputs. So everything is back on the table there. So I think it's more a function of who you're working with, what their needs are. Um, so I'd say there's still very few contraindicated exercises, but there are definitely things I use less as somebody becomes more developed, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, I think you just nailed it. One of the things that was really fascinating for me is we we played the 2020 season in the pandemic, right? years Very shortened. And we had these guys that came back from the season and you have to remember these guys basically, you know, we were relatively open in Florida sooner than the rest of the country. And a lot of these guys trained right up until the day they reported in July. And that these ones that didn't go to the postseason came back after 60 games. Like you don't really detrain a whole lot in a two month season. Yeah. And I'll never forget. We had guys that walked back in and threw four fifty five on the trap bar and pulled it for like these easy sets of five. I'm like, all right, I guess we're training something different this offseason, And it was actually this remarkable, uh, lesson, you know, for me and like, in understanding like, Hey, don't just be emotionally attached to strength. And, you know, we, we, we use the Proteus in totally different ways. We train med ball entirely, you know, more aggressively than we have in the past. We, you know, I think we, our movement competencies got much, much better because of it. Yep. But it was this, this good reminder is that, Hey, once these guys have, have sniffed this level of adaptation, particularly in the context of strength, they kind of reclaim it pretty easily. Yes, You started of the off season and it's way more about like, how do we train other qualities? How do we put them back together if they're a little bit more banged up? Yeah. Uh, the, the focus shifts so much when you deal with more mature athletes. And it's why, like I, I don't think a lot of people that just train teenage athletes have a really good, clear perspective on, you know, how to train a 33 year old professional veteran.
1: It, it's totally different. Yeah. Right. And I hate to say it like that, but you have to think about the mileage that's on their body, you know, the amount of things that they've gone through. So can I ask you a question, even though I'm not probably not supposed to do this? Like what what percentage of your guys would you say you get back in an offseason that need a good chunk of the offseason just to get back to baseline?
0: Um Put it this way, I think there's maybe a little bit more of like a velvet rope in, in our business around guys that really are good about taking care of themselves. I yeah. can tell you every organization is different.
1: Yeah, sure. Um,
0: and so a lot of it depends on the care they receive. If you have strong manual therapy organizations that have great nutrition programs, that, that travel better, things like that, it does seem sure. to be a a shorter window. The other thing is they have, they have varying um, sports medicine resources, you know, yeah, it's, that's true some too. of them get better diagnosis when they're actually a little bit banged up and they, they take care of things versus other ones that come back and are like, Hey, I'm broken. And I don't know why So, I think it's yeah. a mixed bag, but, but I, I would say that that first month tends to be a little bit of triage almost across the board. Um, and it's become hard because in the baseball realm more and more guys want to just keep playing catch. It's like a, a kind yeah. of a new thing where they just want to keep moving it. And we've been able to, you know, I think reconcile those two ends of the spectrum, but, um, What about you? I'll flip flip the tables. How many of you guys on the NBA side of things or even the, you know, the elite soccer side of things are are really like in a rough shape by the end of the season.
1: Yeah. You know, I I was going to say about that same thing. Like uh, I'd say probably 50% need some like dedicated, like they all are going to get some general work at the beginning, but probably 50% are coming off something. Yeah. Right. That's going to take at least a month, if not six to eight weeks to try and get them back to where I feel like, okay, Now we've got a couple more months to like push this and ramp you up. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I just think like, that's one of the, one of the things that you have to be conscious of. It's not like they stop their season. They go on vacation for a week or two and you just get right into off season training. It's like, no, like, Hey, this Achilles thing, this foot thing, this knee thing, whatever it is like, okay, we got to address that for a little while, get you kind of put back together and then we can start onboarding you back into full kind of off season training, if you will.
0: It's a great point. I think there's two other things that maybe get overlooked. Um, you know, the first thing is a lot of times in high-level sport, there's there's a, a hefty dose of pharmacological interventions. Yeah, we've seen athletes that take anti-inflammatories mm-hmm. to get through the season, and then the second season, as they come off, and they they, mm-hmm. they genuinely hurt all over for a week, and then they're yes. often they good afterwards. But they have to go through a little bit of a washout period. That's that's not uncommon. Um, but the other one that that I think is actually a really good lesson for the fans that are listening to this is and baseball is the perfect example right 162 games maybe two days off a month um you know they can they can play i believe with 20 days in a row without being forced to take a day off and they, they can vote against that from a collective bargaining standpoint keep playing but if you go and you look at your average major league team schedule like go on the mlb app and actually look at the number of 7 p.m starts on games that end a series you know that's a, that's a night getaway game so mm-hmm. if you play a you know, basically a night getaway game, the game's probably going to wrap up at 1030. You're going to have treatments, odds and ends, having to pack up when you leave. Those those guys on the road, they're probably not going to be on their flight until between 1130 and 12. And they're going to relocate to another place, sometimes to a unique time zone, which means they're probably at the earliest getting to bed at 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, historically, it's more 5 or 6 a.m. And then most of them are playing a 7 p.m. game that night. So if you if you look at it from that context, really that first month of the season is as much about just normalizing sleep schedule on yeah. something that's constantly in flux. Like if you're if you're a dad and you get home at five a.m., you know you've got a son or a daughter that's like running into the room, a two year old that's because that <laughs> yeah. they're excited to have you open at home. And I, I just don't think that the the lay fan appreciates that and you know, I, I think soccer and basketball and hockey guys, in spite of the that they're long seasons. They're a little spoiled. Like when you got to play seven games in seven days, sometimes eight games in seven days, it's even crazier.
1: Yeah. Well, that's one of the great things, at least about soccer, right? It's the most, most rhythmic of all those yeah. sports, right? So it's easy to kind of plan out a training week and Hey, this is going to be our high intensity days and all that. You get into basketball and it's like, okay, well maybe not every night, but you could have, you know, back to backs, you could have four and five, and there's travel involved there. So, but yeah, I, I've long said the hardest sport to program for, like in season, would have to be baseball. Like, I'm so impressed. I don't know how you guys do it. It would drive me insane.
0: <laughs> I, correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say I read an article on SB Nation a couple years ago that talked about wasn't didn't the NBA make a concerted effort to reduce the number of back to back games? Yes, because the quality of play was deteriorating, they wanted teams to be able to practice in spite of all the load management stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, they were consistently seeing, like, hey, these guys, just like you alluded to, they're getting on a plane at midnight. They're getting in at 5 a.m. You know, then they got to go in, they got to do a shoot around, and they got to play the next day. And so, yeah. And when all your marquee players are out, right? And mm-hmm. somebody pays, whatever, $150, $200 a ticket to go watch LeBron play, and LeBron can't play or he's getting load managed, people aren't happy. Mm-hmm. So that was very definitely a, a big issue and something that they tried to push. And I think some teams are getting better about it. I, I'm sure it's like anything else. Like some teams are more conscious of it and they're going to try and make those concessions and some are going to kind of continue doing what they do. But, you know, everybody thinks that just because it's pro sports that like everybody is like always going to be at the highest levels, you know, and right. every okay. team is different, right? Just like every team is different. Every sports man or every sports performance team every medical team is going to be a little bit different too in their approach.
0: Absolutely. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And you work with athletes. We've talked about pro guys a lot, obviously, but you see athletes all across the training lifespan. I know you got 13 year olds in your gym, just like we do um, all the way up to the pros. What are the key checkpoints for you along this developmental timeline? Where do do you, where do people go wrong when, you know, they've got that 13 year old that they want to play college baseball or or whatever sport? Um, what, What goes wrong in the teenage years?
1: Yeah. I, well, I think we could both agree on this. Number one is just I'm all for the weight room, but using it judiciously early on. Um, and I think starting off, like kind of, if I had to kind of break them into chunks, I would say like middle school is just getting them moving, right? Introducing them to, I don't even want to call it training, but introducing them to being in a weight room, uh, to moving more often, getting them used to like mobility routines and Learning how to control their internal body loads, like squatting, lunging, push-ups. Um, I my gosh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Jeremy Frisch does mm-hmm. some amazing stuff with young kids and young athlete development. Like I think the more you can do that at an early age, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm I'm realistic. Like skill development is a piece of this, right? Yeah. But finding other ways to plug some of these holes that are just They're there in today's society. So I think middle school is a good time to just start being very general. Uh, Obviously, when kids get into high school, they're probably going to get introduced to strength and conditioning either in a private facility or at their high school, making sure that they're doing things there the right way. I mean, I've seen and heard horror stories um, from local schools where I think we had one local high school that referred 10 PT patients to us uh, for lower back issues via their, their strength and conditioning program because- Nothing against back squatting, but if you back squat and you arch as hard as possible on a developing spine, that's generally not the best thing. So starting a very foundational strengthening conditioning program and look like just general general maturation is going to be a huge piece of the puzzle there. You don't have to try and get as strong as possible, like be consistent, get in the weight room, learn how to squat and bench press and deadlift, do all those things efficiently play the long game approach to this because look, if they're that good at sports, somebody's going to find them. Mm -hmm. That's something else I always think of now. Like there are people being paid very large sums of money to find diamonds in the rough on YouTube or on whatever social platform. So be smart, take care of your kid because a lot of times by the time they get to college, hopefully they're done growing, you know, that kind of process is done. I don't know about you, but most of the guys that I see in basketball, in soccer, if they get two to three years of really high level SNC experience in college, they've got a really good foundation to build a professional career off of. I love it. But but yeah, don't don't think just because they're in eighth grade and now they have access to the the high school rate room that mm-hmm. you have to go in and start maxing every day. Right. Yeah. Like More with the long term. game approach, I think is huge.
0: I'm curious. How old are your kids now?
1: Dude. They are eight and eleven.
0: Wow, that went fast. How yeah. how, old, how old? Put it this way, I guarantee you, those they both followed daddy to the gym, run around, hung from pull up bars. Yeah, kids love climbing on chest supported rows for some reason. Like yes. you, you've seen, you got know, swinging from the TRX, all that stuff. Yeah. When were your kids in the gym, messing around, getting excited about it? Versus, you know, as your oldest, is she is she actually training? Like, how, how does it work?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I've always brought them into the gym right? They were three and four years old and Saturday or Sunday, hey, we're going to go into the gym. And I remember the first day we got like proper kind of like wooden plyo boxes made like up to 36 inches. Literally, I think my son was four or five. And the first thing he did was climb all the way up to the top one and jump off. Yep. Right. It's like, it's like a magnet or like a moth Mm -hmm. to a flame. So yeah, taking them in there forever. And now at 11, um, my daughter's getting a little bit more serious with soccer herself. So you know, we try and do a little bit more formal Mm -hmm. and formal. It's like, Hey, we're going to teach you how to squat. We're going to teach you how to lunge. We're going to teach you how to push up, just like owning her own body weight, uh, improving. I just, the way I describe it to kids is their lines, right? Mm -hmm. Just trying to improve their lines, make them move more efficiently. So Mm -hmm. they're less likely to get hurt or to get tired. So they will be a little bit faster. So we're at a great age and that's, with her it's like hey we're just going to go in and we're going to move around it's going to be fun and mm-hmm. you may do a set and then we may kick a soccer ball and then you yep. may do something else and we'll get some buckets like just finding ways to make it fun because i'm also conscious of the fact like you know the stats better than i do but it's, what is it like 0.1 or 0.001 percent play a professional sport that's insane
0: it's it's incredible it's,
1: it's ungodly right and I don't. You put up the stat a couple of years ago. I think it's maybe like twenty one thousand, twenty two thousand people ever have played in the major leagues, right? Yeah,
0: it's hard. I mean, even baseball is one of the ones that's probably easier. You look at like a PGA tour; it's yeah, it's possible.
1: <laughs> so, so just coming back to that as a parent, it's like just being okay with the fact that if your kid never gets a D one scholarship, if they never play professionally, like that's okay. But exposing them to being healthy, to being athletic, to watching you work out and take care of your body, like that's just such a bigger message to send to your kids than, hey, if you don't get that scholarship, you're not important. Or you're not worthy if you don't become a professional. Like, hey, man, let's just have fun and take care of your body and be physical and be active. And that's a way better message, I think, to push than, hey win or get to this level at all costs.
0: I think it's, it's process oriented and not, not destination. Yes. Or it's it's cultivating yes. a good relationship with exercise for the long term. Yes. Uh, so sh- shifting gears again, you know, as you look back over the last year or so, um, what, what, what's your biggest growth area over the last year? What's, what's changed in the way you view overall, uh, you know, training and adaptation and, and how you've implemented it with your athletes.
1: Well, yeah, this is a tough one. I, I thought about this a lot. Like, I feel like I've been very good at coaching movement, you know, especially like you and I grew up in weight rooms. We were power lifters. We did that. Uh, So for me, it's always getting better at the movement side, especially in basketball. Like it's a very movement-based sport, being able to accelerate, decelerate, um, find good angles. So I think for me, it's consistently trying to get better at coaching movement. Um, And one thing that I think is always important, and one thing that distinguishes people from different sports is, you and I may look at a shuffle the exact same way from like a movement perspective, right? Cause a shuffle is a shuffle, but how you finish a shuffle in basketball or what you do at the end of that shuffle is different than what you do in baseball. So it's understanding how plays finish across different sports and then understanding like the culture and the lingo and constantly being able to speak their language. Um, and I think that's something that I always have to get better at because I'm not like an NBA lifer. I'm not one of these guys that's been around NBA teams and been around the sport. Like I've always watched the sport and I've always tried to absorb the culture, but it's different when you're not around guys literally all year round. So I think for me, it's constantly trying to find ways to be more efficient in coaching movement, be more effective in how I'm coaching them, but also trying to find ways to relate and and make what we're doing from a movement perspective, help them understand how it's gonna benefit them on the court. It's trying to tie all those pieces together.
0: I'm curious for you too, is um, so how, how long have you kind of been like all in on like the NBA prep and, and all that stuff? That's
1: really awesome. like the last six, seven years. Yeah. So yeah. six
0: years and you obviously have these guys that come back to you over and over again. Have, have there been something you've learned from like seeing a progression? You know, it's one thing when we get a guy for a summer, right? Yeah. He is who he is. You get some crazy adaptations, send him on his way and you might never see him again, right? Yep. It's different when they keep coming back. Um, are there any trends that you've noticed, like things that you particularly have to stay on top of with those guys that, that become these, you know, they're coming up on a decade with you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things you learn is they are who they are. Right. So, like, there's certain things about every guy that allows them to play at that level. And I'm sure you could say the same thing. Right. Like certain things that hey, this guy, this guy, this guy, they all do this one thing really well. And that helps put them over the top or that makes them elite. So I think that's one thing that I've definitely learned is like, there's, there's all these guys and, and with each one, they are who they are and you're not going to fix it per se, but you got to learn to control their superpowers. Like that's the way Bill always describes it. And I love that because the things that make them great, if taken too far can also cause them harm. Right. So like, Hey, one guy that I'm thinking of in particular, like he's got amazing breaks, right? Like, stop, start on a dime, but his pelvis is really tipped forward. His knees are kind of knocked in, you know, like all the things that you and I would look at and be like, Ooh, I wish I could clean that up. So I try and clean that up as best I can in off season. And I know when he goes and plays basketball, we're going to lose some of that. Right. But that's also part of what makes him good. So I just need to give him a big enough buffer zone to where he doesn't break down. So like, that's one thing that I've learned is a lot of times, When you're getting somebody late 20s, early 30s, like you're probably not going to change them all that much. But it's restoring the things that make them great while keeping them healthy and giving them enough of that buffer zone to where they can go out and stay healthy for another season. Like, again, for me, I think that's the most important thing because you know as well as I do, the money in pro sports is crazy right now. Mm -hmm. So if you get a guy an extra year, an extra two years, an extra three years, that's a significant amount of money. So I think for me, it's trying to make sure, hey, can we get this guy moving good, feeling good? Can we create these buffer zones so they can go and stay healthy and continue to play their sport at the highest possible level? I think that's the biggest thing for me.
0: Absolutely, man. In, in that same vein, you know, you're, you're a progressive guy. Um, I've always really seen things through, I think, a, a unique lens relative to the industry. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you're always pondering ways to get better, what what, what are you thinking about at 3 a.m. as you stare off into blackness? Like what what excites you to learn more in today's industry,
1: man? So I, I think this is I'm at a point now where I've been coaching like 20, 21 years. We're at like the same point, basically, maybe a year or so apart. But, you know, I, I still enjoy this. Like I still love going to the gym. I still love coaching. But I'm also conscious of the fact that I can't coach forever. So how do I continue to evolve and stay relevant and play a part in this? So I think the next step for me is trying to figure out ways to going way back to like the 2000s, like reintegrating some of the sports science stuff that I did at Ball State. Mm -hmm. And maybe you did at UConn and like, okay, force plates are readily accessible now. Mm -hmm. How can I use that more in my assessment process and my return to play process um, and finding ways to help be more diagnostic in our assessment? Uh, to be more targeted when we're writing programs to help better take these athletes that do maybe have a massive asymmetry or something coming off an injury, help them write a better program, coach them a little bit more effectively, so that you know twenty years down the line, if I'm not the guy necessarily on the floor coaching and cueing every rep, I could still be there during the assessment process and trying to figure out okay, what are we looking at here? What issues do we have? How are we going to change their programming based on what we found? How can we implement better strategies? So just trying to find ways to, can you continue to evolve myself Mm -hmm. and continue to play a role in the lives and the development of my athletes? Cause I don't know about you, dude. Like (laughs) when we met with our financial planner years ago, uh, she was like, well, what, what age do you want to retire? I was like, I don't know, like 55. And I wish I could have recorded the look on my wife's face. Cause she's like, (laughs) you're not going to retire ever. You know, like that's just the way guys like you and I are wired. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, if I'm not going to retire at any point, how do I continue to find ways to grow, evolve, and to kind of put my stamp on on what I do and and the impact that we have on our athletes. So I think, you know, better merging the technology with the coaching is kind of the next step for me.
0: We've, uh, let's just say we've definitely had that exact same experience in the financial academy. <laughs> I I'd add that usually when we went to that meeting, my, my wife, the optometrist would be like dressed up for work and I'd be like the dude in, in sweatpants and i <laughs> our financial guy I was like you definitely just sit home and watch sports center all day she's like <laughs> you're just the trophy husband and she, she she's the breadwinner so that's right uh, we've all been there but um no i i think you know if if there's one thing that i kind of thought as you were saying all that stuff is you know you you're obviously president of robertson training systems you own your own business along with bill and you know you're always expected to to have the final answer you know and and to you know kind of lead the charge and sometimes it's it's helpful just to be the the dumbest person in a room but yeah seek out those opportunities. And I think that's where, you know, business partners can be great. Um, you know, like I Shane Ryan, our Florida facility and I have, I have Pete and I have John O'Neill here is, you know, I, I do feel for people who are in entrepreneurship solo, because a lot of times they have to really go out of their way harder to, you know, to find opportunities to be dumb. In, in yeah. the of yeah. their environment. So um, very important lesson.
1: For sure, man. For sure.
0: And in the vein of, of continuous improvement, um, definitely got to sing your praises. Um, Robertson Training Systems podcast is an excellent one. I've been a two-time guest on that, regular listener. Um, and at RobertsonTrainingSystems.com, you've got a bunch of good stuff. Um, but in particular, Complete Coach Certification is, I think, a must-have um, for people in our industry. Um, I give you credit because that's a, a whopper of a project to wrap your head around to, to write a certification for folks. Tell Tell our audience a little bit about
1: it in case they want to check it out. Yeah. I'll give the very briefest uh, explanation, but yeah, I just had that. I had so many emails over the years where people were like, Hey, you've got like 20 or 30 info products. If I could only buy one, which would it be? And I'm like, I don't know. Like I've got mobility and knees and we shot seminars together. So, you know, about five years ago, I just realized, Hey, if, if somebody was new to training or coaching, what would I want them to have? And so that's what I created. It's basically an all encompassing uh, certification that helps people understand like again you and I probably have that classic S&C, you know, you back squat and bench press and deadlift and you have your hypertrophy phase. Basically I tried to say, hey, look, this is how we write programs. This is how we coach and queue. Uh, this is how we progress and regress exercises. So it's essentially the internship process that you would get at IFAST without coming to IFAST. So that's why we created it's just to help coaches and trainers get better results with their clients and athletes because you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of not great materials out there, uh, but I think our system is pretty well proven, and, and general population athletes alike, it's just a it's a well put together system that I think will help trainers and coaches get better results. I love it. This has been awesome,
0: man. Folks can check you out at robertsontrainingsystems.com. You're on all of our Instagram and Twitter, and obviously, IFAST is a, is an awesome facility for those in the Indianapolis area. Um, you're the man. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: Dude, thanks, buddy. It was great catching up. Absolutely.